0: what harm can Smith possibly do to Mr. Bickersdyke by simply correcting a publishing oversight? P.G. Woodhouse, today on the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you to all of our financial supporters. We couldn't do this without you. With the pandemic still pounding at the door, we need your help more than ever. It really helps us out. And in case you've forgotten, a $5 donation gets you an $8 coupon code for any audiobook in the store. Thank you so much for stepping up and helping to keep us going strong. And feel free to check out our free category at classictalesaudiobooks.com. You can pick up some full-length titles for free during the time of the pandemic, including She, A History of Adventure by H. Ryder Haggard, and the Edgar Allan Poe Collection. And these are free just to help you make it through, because we all need all the help we can get right now. App users who absolutely need to get their Halloween monster fix can hear The Body Snatcher by Robert Louis Stevenson in the Special Features area for this week's episode. Tap the box that looks like a present. Now for our personal moment. It's that time of year when the horse chestnut tree in our front yard drops its fruit. This thing takes up practically our whole front yard. If you haven't seen one, a chestnut or a horse chestnut when it grows on the tree, it has a sharp spiky husk around the fruit or nut. And it's really sharp and they're horrible to step on when they fall on the ground. But every year at this time, we go outside and we play chestnuts. I was doing air quotes there. We take the nuts off the ground and we throw them up and try and knock the clusters of them that are still on the tree down. I'm terrible. I'm, I'm the worst one. But it's something that we love doing. Every year we have to move the cars so we don't hit the cars. And we don't hit the neighbor's cars, of course. Well, usually. I did this year, but... It was only one time. Anyway, it's something that we've been doing since the kids were little. And now with two kids in college and one in high school, we were able to play chestnuts. It was a lot of fun. And now, Smith in the City, part three of six by P.G. Woodhouse. Chapter 10 Mr. Bickersdyke Addresses His Constituents. It was noted by the observant at the bank next morning that Mr. Bickersdyke had something on his mind. William the Messenger knew it, when he found his respectful salute ignored. Little Briggs the Accountant knew it, when his obsequious but cheerful Good Morning was acknowledged only by a Morn, which was almost an oath. Mr. Bickersdyke passed up the aisle and into his room like an east wind. He sat down at his table and pressed the bell. Harold, William's brother and co-messenger, entered with the air of one ready to duck if any missile should be thrown at him. The reports of the manager's frame of mind had been circulated in the office, and Harold felt somewhat apprehensive. It was on an occasion very similar to this— "'that George Barstead, formerly in the employ of the new Asiatic bank, "'in the capacity of messenger, "'had been rash enough to laugh "'at what he had taken for a joke of Mr. Bickersdyke's, "'and had been instantly presented with the sack for gross impertinence. "'Ask Mr. Smith,' began the manager. "'Then he paused. "'No, never mind,' he added. "'Harold remained in the doorway puzzled.' "'Don't stand there gaping at me, man,' cried Mr. Bickersdyke. "'Go away!' Harold retired and informed his brother William that in his, Harold's, opinion, Mr. Bickersdyke was off his chump. "'Off his onion!' said William, soaring a trifle higher in poetic imagery. me was the terse verdict of Samuel Jakes, the third messenger. "'Always said so, and with that,' The new Asiatic Bank staff of messengers dismissed Mr. Biggersdyke and proceeded to concentrate themselves on their duties, which consisted principally of hanging about and discussing the prophecies of that modern seer, Captain Coe. What had made Mr. Biggersdyke change his mind so abruptly was the sudden realization of the fact that he had no case against Smith. In his capacity of manager of the bank, he could not take official notice of Smith's behaviour outside office hours, especially as Smith had done nothing but stare at him. It would be impossible to make anybody understand the true inwardness of Smith's stare. Theoretically, Mr. Biggersdyke had the power to dismiss any subordinate of his, whom he did not consider satisfactory, but it was a power that had to be exercised with discretion.' The manager was accountable for his actions to the board of directors. If he dismissed Smith, Smith would certainly bring an action against the bank for wrongful dismissal, and on the evidence he would infallibly win it. Mr. Biggersdyke did not welcome the prospect of having to explain to the directors that he had let the shareholders of the bank in for a fine of whatever a discriminating jury cared to decide upon, simply because he had been stared at while playing bridge. "'His only hope was to catch Smith doing his work badly. "'He touched the bell again and sent for Mr. Rossiter. "'The messenger found the head of the postage department "'in conversation with Smith. "'Manchester United had been beaten by one goal to nil "'on the previous afternoon, "'and Smith was informing Mr. Rossiter "'that the referee was a robber "'who had evidently been financially interested "'in the result of the game.' THE WAY HE HIMSELF LOOKED AT IT, SAID SMITH, WAS THAT THE THING HAD BEEN A MORAL VICTORY FOR THE UNITED. MR. ROSSITER SAID YES, HE THOUGHT SO TOO, AND IT WAS AT THIS MOMENT THAT MR. Bickersdyke SENT FOR HIM TO ASK WHETHER SMITH'S WORK WAS SATISFACTORY. THE HEAD OF THE POSTAGE DEPARTMENT GAVE HIS OPINION WITHOUT HESITATION. SMITH'S WORK WAS ABOUT THE HOTTEST PROPOSITION HE HAD EVER STRUCK. SMITH'S WORK, WELL, IT STOOD ALONE. "'You couldn't compare it with anything. "'There are no degrees in perfection. "'Smith's work was perfect, and there was an end to it.' "'He put it differently, but that was the gist of what he said. "'Mr. Bickersdyke observed he was glad to hear it, "'and smashed a nib by stabbing the desk with it. "'It was on the evening following this "'that the bank manager was due to address a meeting "'at the Kenningford Town Hall.' He was looking forward to the event with mixed feelings. He had stood for Parliament once before, several years back, in the North. He had been defeated by a couple of thousand votes, and he hoped that the episode had been forgotten. Not merely because his defeat had been heavy. There was another reason. On that occasion he had stood as a Liberal. He was standing for Kenningford as a Unionist. Of course, a man is at perfect liberty to change his views— "'if he wishes to do so, "'but the process is apt to give his opponents "'a chance of catching him, "'to use the inspired language of the music-halls, "'on the bend. "'Mr. Biggersdyke was rather afraid "'that the light-hearted electors of Kenningford "'might avail themselves of this chance. "'Kenningford, S.E. is undoubtedly "'by way of being a tough sort of place. "'Its inhabitants inclined to a robust type of humour. "'which finds a verbal vent in catchphrases "'and expends itself physically "'in smashing shop-windows and kicking policemen. "'He feared that the meeting at the town hall "'might possibly be a trifle rowdy. "'All political meetings are very much alike. "'Somebody gets up and introduces the speaker of the evening, "'and then the speaker of the evening says at great length "'what he thinks of the scandalous manner "'in which the government is behaving,' or the iniquitous goings-on of the opposition. From time to time, confederates in the audience rise and ask carefully rehearsed questions, and are answered fully and satisfactorily by the orator. When a genuine heckler interrupts, the orator either ignores him, or says haughtily that he can find him arguments but cannot find him brains, or occasionally, when the question is an easy one, he answers it, "'A quietly conducted political meeting is one of England's most delightful indoor games. "'When the meeting is rowdy, the audience has more fun, but the speaker a good deal less. "'Mr. Bickersdyke's introducer was an elderly Scotch peer, "'an excellent man for the purpose in every respect, except that he possessed a very strong accent. "'The audience welcomed that accent uproariously.' The electors of Kenningford, who really had any definite opinions on politics, were fairly equally divided. There were about as many earnest liberals as there were earnest unionists. But besides these, there was a strong contingent who did not care which side won. These looked on elections as heaven-sent opportunities for making a great deal of noise. They attended meetings in order to extract amusement from them. And they voted, if they voted at all— quite irresponsibly. A funny story at the expense of one candidate told on the morning of the polling was quite likely to send these brave fellows off in dozens, filling in their papers for the victim's opponent. There was a solid block of these gay spirits at the back of the hall. They received the Scotch peer with huge delight. He reminded them of Harry Lauder, and they said so. They addressed him affectionately as "'Harry!' "'throughout his speech, which was rather long. "'They implored him to be a pal and sing "'The softest of the family,' "'or, failing that, I love a lassie. "'Finding they could not induce him to do this, "'they did it themselves. "'They sang it several times. "'When the peer, having finished his remarks "'on the subject of Mr. Bickersdyke, at length sat down, "'they cheered for seven minutes and demanded an encore.' The meeting was in excellent spirits when Mr. Biggersdyke rose to address it. The effort of doing justice to the last speaker had left the free and independent electors at the back of the hall slightly limp. The bank manager's opening remarks were received without any demonstration. Mr. Bickersdyke spoke well. He had a penetrating, if harsh, voice, and he said what he had to say forcibly. Little by little the audience came under his spell. When, at the end of a well-turned sentence, he paused and took a sip of water, there was a round of applause, in which many of the admirers of Mr. Harry Lowder joined. He resumed his speech. The audience listened intently. Mr. Biggersdyke, having said some nasty things about free trade and the alien immigrant, turned to the needs of the Navy and of the necessity of increasing the fleet at all costs. This is no time for half measures, he said. We must do our utmost. We must burn our boats. Excuse me, said a gentle voice. mister Bickersdyke broke off. In the centre of the hall a tall figure had risen. mister Bickersdyke found himself looking at a gleaming eyeglass, which the speaker had just polished had inserted in his eye. "'The ordinary heckler, Mr. Biggersdyke, "'would have taken in his stride. "'He had got his audience, "'and simply by continuing and ignoring the interruption, "'he could have won through in safety. "'But the sudden appearance of Smith unnerved him. "'He remained silent. "'How,' asked Smith, "'do you propose to strengthen the navy by burning boats?' The inanity of the question enraged even the pleasure seekers at the back. Order, order! cried the earnest contingent. Sit down, face! roared the pleasure seekers. Smith sat down with a patient smile. Mr. Bickersdyke resumed his speech, but the fire had gone out of it. He had lost his audience. A moment before he had grasped them and played on their minds, or what passed for minds down Cunningford Way as on a stringed instrument. Now he had lost his hold. He spoke on rapidly, but could not get into his stride. The trivial interruption had broken the spell. His words lacked grip. The dead silence, in which the first part of his speech had been received, that silence which is a greater tribute to the speaker than any applause, had given place to a restless medley of little noises, Here, a cough, there was scraping of a boot along the floor, as its wearer moved uneasily in his seat. In another place a whispered conversation. The audience was bored. Mr Bickersdyke left the navy and went on to more general topics. But he was not interesting. He quoted figures, saw a moment later that he had not quoted them accurately, and instead of carrying on boldly, went back and corrected himself. Go up top, said a voice at the back of the hall. And there was a general laugh. Mr. Bickersdyke galloped unsteadily on. He condemned the government. He said they had betrayed their trust. And then he told an anecdote. The government, gentlemen, he said, achieves nothing worth achieving. And every individual member of the government takes all the credit for what is done to himself. Their methods remind me, gentlemen an amusing experience I had while fishing one summer in the Lake District. In a volume entitled Three Men in a Boat, there is a story of how the author and a friend go into a riverside inn and see a very large trout in a glass case. They make inquiries about it, have men assure them one by one that the trout was caught by themselves. In the end, the trout turns out to be made of plaster of Paris.' Mr. Bickersdyke told that story as an experience of his own while fishing one summer in the Lake District. It went well. The meeting was amused. Mr. Bickersdyke went on to draw a trenchant comparison between the lack of genuine merit in the trout and the lack of genuine merit in the achievements of His Majesty's Government. There was applause. When it had ceased, Smith rose to his feet again. "'Excuse me,' He said. Chapter 11 Misunderstood. Mike had refused to accompany Smith to the meeting that evening, saying that he got too many chances in the ordinary way of business of hearing Mr. Bickersdyke speak without going out of his way to make more. So Smith had gone off to Kenningford alone and Mike, feeling too lazy to sally out to any place of entertainment, had remained at the flat with a novel. He was deep in this when there was the sound of a key in the latch, and shortly afterwards Smith entered the room. On Smith's brow there was a look of pensive care, and also a slight discolouration. When he removed his overcoat, Mike saw that his collar was burst and hanging loose, and that he had no tie. "'On his erstwhile speckless and gleaming shirt-front "'were a number of finger-impressions, "'of a boldness and clearness of outline "'which would have made a Bertion expert leap with joy. "'Hello,' said Mike, dropping his book. "'Smith nodded in silence, went to his bedroom, "'and returned with a looking-glass. "'Propping this up on a table, "'he proceeded to examine himself with the utmost care.' He shuddered slightly as his eye fell on the finger-marks, and without a word he went to his bathroom again. He emerged after an interval of ten minutes in sky-blue pyjamas, slippers, and an old Etonian blazer. He lit a cigarette, and sitting down, stared pensively into the fire. "'What the dickens have you been playing at?' demanded Mike. Smith heaved a sigh. "'That!' He replied I could not say precisely At one moment it seemed to be rugby football At another a jiu-jitsu seance Later it bore a resemblance to a pantomime rally However, whatever it was It was all very bright and interesting A distinct experience Have you been scrapping? Asked Mike What happened? Was there a row? There was Said Smith "'in a measure what might be described as a row. "'At least when you find a perfect stranger "'attaching himself to your collar and pulling, "'you begin to suspect that something of that kind is on the bill. "'Did they do that?' Smith nodded. "'A merchant in a moth-eaten bowler "'started warbling to a certain extent with me. "'He was all very trying for a man of culture. "'He was a man who had, I should say, "'discovered that alcohol was a food— long before the doctors found it out. A good chap, possibly, but a little boisterous in his manner. Well, well. Smith shook his head sadly. He got you one on the forehead? said Mike. Or somebody did. Tell us what happened. I wish the Dickens I'd come with you. I'd no notion there would be a rag of any sort. What did happen? Comrade Jackson, said Smith sorrowfully. How sad it is in this life of ours! "'to be consistently misunderstood. "'You know, of course, how wrapped up I am "'in Comrade Bickersdyke's welfare. "'You know that all my efforts are directed "'towards making a decent man of him. "'That, in short, I am his truest friend. "'Does he show by so much as a word "'that he appreciates my labours? "'Not he. "'I believe that man is beginning to dislike me, "'Comrade Jackson. "'What happened, anyhow?' "'Never mind about Biggersdyke. "'Hmm. Perhaps it was mistaken zeal on my part. "'Well, I will tell you all. "'Make a long arm for the shovel, Comrade Jackson, "'and pile on a few more coals. I thank you.' "'Well, all went quite smoothly for a while. "'Comrade B. in quite good form, "'got his second wind, and was going strong for the tape, "'when a regrettable incident occurred. "'He informed the meeting—' "'that while up in the lake country, fishing, "'he went to an inn and saw a remarkably large stuffed trout in a glass case. "'He made inquiries and found that five separate and distinct people "'had caught—' "'Why, dash it all,' said Mike. "'That's a frightful chestnut.' "'Smith nodded. "'It certainly has appeared in print,' he said. "'In fact, I should have said it was a rather well-known story.' "'I was so interested in Comrade Bickersdyke's statement "'that the thing had happened to himself "'that purely out of good will towards him "'I got up and told him that I thought it was my duty as a friend "'to let him know that a man named Jerome "'had pinched his story, put it in a book, and got money by it. "'Money, mark you, that should by rights have been Comrade Bickersdyke's. "'He didn't appear to care much about sifting the matter thoroughly.' In fact, he seemed anxious to get on with his speech and slur the matter over, but tactlessly, perhaps, I continued rather to harp on the thing. I said that the book in which the story had appeared was published in 1889. I asked him how long ago it was that he had been on his fishing tour, because it was important to know in order to bring the charge home against Jerome. Well, after a bit I was amazed and pained, too, "'to hear Comrade Bickersdyke urging certain bravos in the audience to turn me out, "'if ever there was a case of biting the hand that fed him. "'Well, well. "'By this time the meeting had begun to take sides to some extent. "'What I might call my party, the earnest investigators, "'were whistling between their fingers, "'stamping on the floor and shouting, "'Chestnuts!' "'While the opposing party, the bravos, "'seemed to be trying, as I say, to do jiu-jitsu tricks with me.' It was a painful situation. I know the cultivated man of affairs should have passed the thing off with a short, careless laugh, but owing to the above mentioned alcohol expert having got both hands under my collar, short, careless laughs were off. I was compelled, very reluctantly, to conclude the interview by tapping the bright boy on the jaw. He took the hint and sat down on the floor. I thought no more of the matter, and was making my way thoughtfully to the exit. "'when a second man of wrath put the above on my forehead. "'You can't ignore a thing like that. "'I collected some of his waistcoat and one of his legs "'and hove him with some vim into the middle distance. "'By this time a good many of the earnest investigators "'were beginning to join in, "'and it was just there that the affair began to have "'certain points of resemblance to a pantomime rally. "'Everybody seemed to be shouting a good deal "'and hitting everybody else.' "'It was no place for a man of delicate culture, "'so I edged towards the door and drifted out. "'There was a cab in the offing. "'I boarded it, "'and having kicked a vigorous politician in the stomach "'as he was endeavouring to climb in too, "'I drove off home.' "'Smith got up, "'looked at his forehead once more in the glass, sighed, and sat down again. "'All very disturbing,' he said. "'Great Scott,' said Mike, "'I wish I'd come. "'Why on earth didn't you tell me you were going to rag? "'I think you might as well have done. "'I wouldn't have missed it for worlds.' "'Smith regarded him with raised eyebrows. "'Rag?' he said. "'Comrade Jackson, I do not understand you. "'You surely do not think that I had any other object in doing what I did "'than to serve Comrade Bickersdyke. "'It's terrible how one's motives get distorted in this world of ours.' "'Well,' "'said Mike with a grin. "'I know one person who will jolly well distort your motives, as you call it, "'and that's Bickersdyke.' "'Smith looked thoughtful. "'True,' he said, "'true. "'There is that possibility. "'I tell you, Comrade Jackson, once more, "'that my bright young life is being slowly blighted "'by the frightful way in which that man misunderstands me.' "'it seems almost impossible to try to do him a good turn "'without having the action misconstrued. "'Will you say to him tomorrow, "'I shall make no allusion to the painful affair. "'If I happen to meet him in the ordinary course of business routine, "'I shall pass some light, pleasant remark, "'on the weather, let us say, or the bank-rate, "'and continue my duties. "'How about if he sends for you "'and wants to do the light, pleasant remark business on his own?' "'in that case I shall not thwart him. "'If he invites me into his private room, "'I shall be his guest, "'and shall discuss, to the best of my ability, "'any topic which he may care to introduce. "'There shall be no constraint "'between Comrade Bickersdyke and myself.' "'No, I shouldn't think there would be. "'I wish I could come and hear you. "'I wish you could,' said Smith courteously. "'Still, it doesn't matter much to you. "'You don't care if you do get sacked.' Smith rose. In that way, possibly, as you say, I am agreeably situated. If the new Asiatic bank does not require Smith's services, there are other spheres where a young man of spirit may carve a place for himself. Now, what is worrying me, Comrade Jackson, is not the thought of the push. It is the growing fear that Comrade Bickersdyke and I will never thoroughly understand and appreciate one another." "'A deep gulf lies between us. "'I do what I can do to bridge it over, "'but he makes no response. "'On his side of the gulf, "'building operations appear to be at an entire standstill. "'That is what is carving these lines of care "'on my forehead, Comrade Jackson. "'That is what is painting these purple circles beneath my eyes. "'Quite inadvertently to be disturbing Comrade Bickersdyke, "'annoying him, preventing him from enjoying life.' How sad this is. Life bulges with these tragedies. Mike picked up the evening paper. Don't let it keep you awake at night, he said. By the way, did you see that Manchester United were playing this afternoon? They won. You'd better sit down and sweat up some of the details. You'll want them tomorrow. You are very right, Comrade Jackson, said Smith, reseating himself. So the Mancunians pushed the bulb into the meshes beyond the uprights no fewer than four times, did they? Bless the dear boys, what spirits they do enjoy, to be sure. Comrade Jackson, do not disturb me. I must concentrate myself. These are deep waters. CHAPTER Twelve IN A NUTSHELL Mr. Bickersdyke sat in his private room at the new Asiatic bank with a pile of newspapers before him. At least the casual observer would have said that it was Mr. Bickersdyke. In reality, however, it was an active volcano in the shape and clothes of the bank manager. It was freely admitted in the office that morning that the manager had lowered all records with ease. The staff had known him to be in a bad temper before, frequently, but his frame of mind on all previous occasions had been, compared with his present frame of mind, that of a rather exceptionally good-natured lamb. Within ten minutes of his arrival, the entire office was on the jump. The messengers were collected in a pallid group in the basement, discussing the affair in whispers, and endeavouring to restore their nerve with about sixpen worth of the beverage known as unsweetened. The heads of departments, to a man, had bowed before the storm. Within the space of seven minutes and a quarter, Mr. Bickersdyke had contrived to find some fault with each of them. Inward Bills was out at an ABC shop snatching a hasty cup of coffee to pull himself together again. Outward Bills was sitting at his desk with a glazed stare of one who had been struck in the thorax by a thunderbolt. Mr. Rossiter had been torn from Smith, in the middle of a highly technical discussion of the Manchester United match, just as he was showing, with the aid of a ball of paper, how he had once seen Meredith centred at Sandy Turnbull in a cup-match, and was now leaping about like a distracted grasshopper. Mr. Waller, head of the cash department, had been summoned to the presence, and, after listening meekly to a rush of criticism, had retired to his desk with the air of a beaten spaniel, Only one man of the many in the building seemed calm and happy. Smith. Smith had resumed the chat about Manchester United on Mr. Rossiter's return from the lion's den at the spot where it had broken off. But finding that the head of the postage department was in no mood for discussing football or anything else, he had postponed his remarks and placidly resumed his work. Mr. Bickersdyke picked up a paper, opened it, and began searching the columns. He had not far to look. It was a slack season for the newspapers, and his little trouble, which might have received a paragraph in a busy week, was set forth fully in three quarters of a column. The column was headed Amusing Heckling. Mr. Bickersdyke read a few lines and crumpled the paper up with a snort. The next he examined was an organ of his own shade of political opinion. It, too, gave him nearly a column, headed, Disgraceful Scene at Kenningford. There was also a leaderette on the subject. The leaderette said so exactly what Mr. Bickersdyke thought himself that for a moment he was soothed. Then the thought of his grievance returned, and he pressed the bell. "'Send Mr. Smith to me,' he said. William, the messenger, proceeded to inform Smith of the summons. "'Smith's face lit up. "'I am always glad to sweeten the monotony of toil "'with a chat with little Clarence,' he said. "'I shall be with him in a moment.' "'He cleaned his pen very carefully, "'placed it beside his ledger, "'flicked a little dust off his coat-sleeve, "'and made his way to the manager's room. "'Mr. Biggersdyke received him "'with the ominous restraint of a tiger "'crouching for its spring. "'Smith stood beside the table with languid grace.' "'suggestive of some favoured confidential secretary "'waiting for instructions. "'A ponderous silence brooded over the room for some moments. "'Smith broke it by remarking that the bank-rate was unchanged. "'He mentioned this fact as if it afforded him a personal gratification. "'Mr. Biggersdyke spoke. "'Well, Mr. Smith,' he said, "'you wish to see me about something, sir?' "'inquired Smith ingratiatingly. "'You know perfectly well "'what I wish to see you about. "'I want to hear your explanation "'of what occurred last night. "'May I sit, sir?' "'He dropped gracefully into a chair, "'without waiting for permission, "'and having hitched up the knees of his trousers, "'beamed winningly at the manager. "'A deplorable affair,' he said, "'with a shake of his head. "'Extremely deplorable!' "'We must not judge these rough, uneducated men too harshly, however. "'In a time of excitement, "'the emotions of the lower classes are easily stirred, "'where you or I would—' "'Mr. Bickersdyke interrupted. "'I do not wish for any more buffoonery, Mr. Smith.' "'Smith raised a pained pair of eyebrows. "'Buffoonery, sir? "'I cannot understand what made you act as you did last night, "'unless you are perfectly mad, as I am beginning to think.' "'But surely, sir, there is nothing remarkable in my behaviour. "'When a merchant has attached himself to your collar, "'can you do less than smite him on the other cheek? "'I merely acted in self-defence. "'You saw for yourself. "'You know what I am alluding to. "'Your behaviour during my speech!' "'An excellent speech,' murmured Smith courteously. "'Well,' said Mr. Bickersdyke, "'It was perhaps mistaken zeal on my part, sir, but you must remember that I acted purely from the best motives. It seemed to me—' "'That is enough, Mr. Smith. I confess that I am absolutely at a loss to understand you.' "'It is too true, sir,' sighed Smith. "'You seem,' continued Mr. Biggersdyke, warming to his subject and turning gradually a richer shade of purple—' "'You seem to be determined to endeavour to annoy me.' "'No, no,' from Smith, "'I can only assume that you are not in your right senses. "'You follow me about in my club.' "'Our club, sir,' murmured Smith. "'Be good enough not to interrupt me, Mr. Smith. "'You dog my footsteps in my club.' "'Purely accidental, sir. "'We happen to meet, that is all.' You attend meetings at which I am speaking and behave in a perfectly imbecile manner. Smith moaned slightly. It may be humorous to you, but I can assure you it is extremely bad policy on your part. The new Asiatic bank is no place for humor, and I think— Excuse me, sir, said Smith. The manager started at the familiar phrase. The plum colour of his complexion deepened. "'I entirely agree with you, sir,' said Smith, "'that this bank is no place for humour. "'Very well, then. You—' "'And I am never humorous in it. "'I arrive punctually in the morning, "'and I work steadily and earnestly "'till my labours are completed. "'I think you will find on inquiry "'that Mr. Rossiter is satisfied with my work.' "'That is neither here nor—' "'Surely, sir,' said Smith, "'you are wrong.' "'Surely your jurisdiction ceases after office hours. "'Any little misunderstanding we may have "'at the close of the day's work "'cannot affect you officially. "'You could not, for instance, "'dismiss me from the service of the bank "'if we were partners at bridge at the club "'and I happened to revoke. "'I can dismiss you, let me tell you, Mr. Smith, "'for studied insolence, whether in the office or not.' "'I bow to superior knowledge,' said Smith politely. "'But I confess I doubt it. "'And,' he added, "'there is another point. "'May I continue to some extent?' "'If you have anything to say, say it.' "'Smith flung one leg over the other "'and settled his collar. "'It is perhaps a delicate matter,' he said, "'but it is best to be frank. "'We should have no secrets.' "'To put my point quite clearly, I must go back a little, "'to the time when you paid us that very welcome weekend visit "'at our house in August. "'If you hope to make capital out of the fact "'that I have been a guest of your father—' "'Not at all,' said Smith deprecatingly. "'Not at all. You do not take me. "'My point is this. "'I do not wish to revive painful memories, "'but it cannot be denied that there was, here and there— some slight bickering between us on that occasion. The fault, said Smith magnanimously, was possibly mine. I may have been too exacting, too capricious. Perhaps so. However, the fact remains that you conceived the happy notion of getting me into this bank under the impression that once I was in, you would be able to, if I may use the expression, give me the beans.' "'You said as much to me, if I remember. "'I hate to say it, but don't you think that if you give me the sack, "'although my work is satisfactory to the head of my department, "'you will be by way of admitting that you bit off rather more than you could chew? "'I merely make the suggestion.' mister Bickersdyke half rose from his chair. "'You!' "'Just so, just so. "'But to return to the main point, don't you?' "'The whole painful affair reminds me of the story "'of Agesilaus and the petulant Pterodactyl, "'which, as you have never heard, I will now proceed to relate. "'Agesilaus—' "'Mr. Biggersdyke made a curious clucking noise in his throat. "'I am boring you,' said Smith, with ready tact. "'Suffice it to say that Comrade Agesilaus "'interfered with the Pterodactyl, which was doing him no harm, "'and the intelligent creature—' whose motto was Nemo me impune lacessit, like turned and bit him, bit him good and hard, so that Agesilaus ever afterwards had a distaste for pterodactyls. His reluctance to disturb them became quite a byword. The society papers of the period frequently commented upon it. Let us draw the parallel. Here Mr. Bickersdyke, who had been clucking throughout this speech— essayed to speak, but Smith hurried on. "'You are a Gesselaus,' he said. "'I am the petulant Pterodactyl. You, if I may say so, butted in of your own free will and took me from a happy home, simply in order that you might get me into this place under you and give me the beans. But, curiously enough, the major portion of that vegetable seems to be coming to you. Of course, you can administer the push, if you like, but, as I say—' it will be by way of a confession that your scheme has sprung a leak. Personally, said Smith, as one friend to another, I should advise you to stick it out. You never know what may happen. At any moment I may fall from my present high standard of industry and excellence, and then you have me, so to speak, where the hair is crisp.' He paused. Mr. Biggersdyke's eyes which, even in their normal state, protruded slightly, now looked as if they might fall out at any moment. His face had passed from the plum-coloured stage to something beyond. Every now and then he made the clucking noise, and except for that he was silent. Smith, having waited for some time for something in the shape of comment or criticism on his remarks, now rose. "'It has been a great treat to me, this little chat,' he said affably, but I fear that I must no longer allow purely social enjoyments to interfere with my commercial pursuits. With your permission, I will rejoin my department, where my absence is doubtless already causing comment and possibly dismay. But we shall be meeting at the club shortly, I hope. Goodbye, sir. Goodbye. He left the room and walked dreamily back to the postage department. Leaving the manager still staring glassily at nothing. This is BJ Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of Smith in the City, part three of six by P.G. Woodhouse. If you have enjoyed this book, please visit our website at classictalesaudiobooks.com and sign up to be a financial supporter. Donate $5 a month and get a monthly coupon code for $8 off any audiobook. And feel free to take advantage of our free categories during this crazy time of the pandemic. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week, and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper.